0: 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 2 through 17. If you would follow along with me, please. This is the most important thing we're going to do together. Look at God's word together. Hear from him directly. Starting at verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Kar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, to Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's hard to title a message in this chapter anything other than returning to the Lord. Because that is what Samuel meets the lamentations of God's people with. If you are returning to the Lord. It's very important that he says If. He doesn't assume just because of their lamentations, their loud cries, and their sorrow that they're expressing together. He doesn't assume based on what their outward appearance is that they are in fact returning to the Lord. His question is, again, if you are returning to the Lord. We should recognize that in any season of spiritual famine, we are constantly being called to return wholeheartedly to the Lord. Now that's important to, to designate that our hearts must return to the Lord. And it's also important to add that if our hearts are returning to the Lord, there will be visible signs. It won't necessarily be just an emotional outcry. It needs to be perhaps more than that. Hence his call to put away their idols. But in thinking about this ark narrative that started three sermons ago, or really you could say four sermons ago, in these last few chapters of 1 Samuel it was interesting to me that, particularly our last three messages, our times together, we were kind of hit with three different postures that God's word calls us to. And it reminded me of going to the chiropractor. And that when you go for an adjustment, you, at least my chiropractor, will say, okay, well, you need to get on the table, lay on your back. And then he checks your posture, checks your feet, checks make sure everything is in line. They say, okay, now go to your side. And then it's when you get on your side when he like does that thing where he punches you in the neck, Right? And you feel better. Um, So you have that. It's your second posture. And then your third posture is lying on your belly, which is really where the pain comes, right? Because then it's that special spot in your back that, you know, yeah. It's a very aggressive experience, isn't it? But it's helpful. It's good. And we need all of those different postures in order to get ourselves back in line with where we need to be. These adjustments are necessary. These postures are required. When we considered that Israel and the Philistines were being called to humble themselves before the heavy hand of the Lord, humility called them to be brought low. When we considered most recently about standing before the Lord, who is able to stand before this holy God, we were being called to be brought up in Christ. To return to him now is to be called, is to be brought back. It's interesting that we could perhaps even designate three words with these postures of humility, assurance, and repentance. Humility, again, be brought low before God. Remember, humility is not just thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Putting yourself in the right posture before the Lord. Be brought low. To stand before the Lord, he calls us to be brought up in Christ, and now to return to the Lord, to be brought back. So you got these different postures, be brought low, brought up, And brought back humility, assurance, and now finally in this last part of this chunk of the narrative, repentance, returning. We say this word repent a lot, and I try to make sure I define these Christianese kind of words, but to repent literally means to turn around, to go a different direction than you were before. And certainly in the context of the Bible, we're being called to repent or turn away from sin and turn to God. And Samuel rightly asks those who seem to be repenting to prove their repentance in one sense. Not to earn their repentance, not to do something to earn God's favor, but rather to reveal the nature of their heart in their actions. So let's look at this passage, and we'll look at it in three different sections or ideas. First, let's consider Samuel's heart and leadership in this call of spiritual famine to return wholeheartedly to the Lord. Samuel's heart and Samuel's leadership. It's interesting, and I got stuck for a long time on verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. Do you remember this last week? The ark had been passed along Philistine city to Philistine city until finally they said, we just have to get rid of this. Take it back to Israel. Bring it back to where it belongs. Kiriath-Jerim wasn't even the original... um, landing point that they had in mind. It was supposed to be Beth Shemesh, but they couldn't handle the presence of the Lord either. There were some 40, I think, people who looked into the ark, treating it like a trinket, like a tourist attraction, and not the representation of God's holiness. And so the ark stayed at Kiriath-Jerim for some 20 years. That doesn't just mean that that's where the ark was. It means that there was a stagnation in the worship of God's people. That there was a, a, a stopping point. And for 20 years, it seems that worship was slow moving, if moving at all. It's fascinating to me, again, to consider that for 20 years, they couldn't figure out what they needed to do with the ark. They couldn't open up the Bible and see the instructions for how to transport it to where it needed to be. And all the while, they have this incredible leader, Samuel, who was raised up from a little boy who, as we read earlier in his first part of his story, was one that everybody knew. He was a prophet of the Lord. We should listen to this kid. He can preach. He can teach. He calls us to things that God wants us to do, and we should do them. It's very easy for us to think or at least act that growth and spiritual maturity is an overnight process. I become a Christian, and the next day I'm the holiest person I know even with the best teachers, like Samuel, even like Moses, perhaps even Jesus with his 12 disciples. And how many times Jesus says to those disciples, where's your faith? Why are you so, so slow to understand? Growth in the Christian life is a slow process. And I think that is by design. 2 Peter 3.9 is a great place to go when we consider that what God's doing seems to be taking too long. Peter reminds us that we shouldn't count slowness the way, that God doesn't count slowness the way we count slowness. That He's patient towards us. It's not slowness. It's not that he hasn't figured it out. Anytime that God seems to be slow in our perception, it is in his perception an expression of patience. And boy, do we need his patience. Peter goes on to say that to the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day it's all the same it doesn't time has no effect on God the way it does on us so after these 20 years Israel comes up to To this point where they say, wow, we are going to start lamenting. We are going to create together this loud cry of sadness over the Ark of the Covenant. Not a bad thing to do necessarily, but again, not the end-all, be-all proof that there is wholehearted returning to the Lord going on. So Samuel asks this question. If you are returning, are you really returning to the Lord? In your moments of repentance in your life where you recognize there's sin I need to deal with. It's been dealt with at the cross. I need to turn away from it. How do you know if you're really returning to the Lord? Because repentance isn't just us closing our eyes to our sin. Repentance is actually less about turning from sin and more about turning to God. In the Christian life, it's so easy to think in terms of negative only. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But even think back to the beginning of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. It starts with an indicative statement. I'm telling you something that you need to know and let that be the basis for all of your morality afterwards. And that should not only rend a heart humble before God, assured of his grace and penitent before him, but it should also reflect itself secondarily in the removal of idols. So that's what Samuel asks If this is true, put away the idols, put away the Ashtaroth, put away the Baals, put away all your other means of finding fulfillment, satisfaction, or your needs, and find all those things in God alone. Israel's heart and action at Mizpah then. And perhaps there's something in here for us as we consider what to do in seasons of spiritual famine. But in verse 6, there's a very interesting practice that's not prescribed in the law at all as part of worship. But it's not a bad thing. If you look down to verse 6, you see that the people gathered at Mizpah and they drew water and they poured it out before the Lord and fasted on, the day, on that day. What in the world is this pouring out water? What, what could that mean? I think that the writer gives us a really good hint because it's right next to this phrase that they were fasting as well the idea of pouring out water then seems most likely to have been an expression that our hope is not in natural, regular resources of this life. Whenever we fast, what we're doing is saying no to a good thing so that we can fix our heart and mind even more on God. Even more on recognizing that yeah, water's good, food is good. I mean, those are like what we do with fasting, right? But you can fast from any good thing if you really think about it right i'm going to fast from i don't know taking the walk that i really look forward to so that i can whatever it is we're taking a good thing and setting it to the side for a period of time in order to seek the lord more wholeheartedly fasting is a great expression of a heart that is truly penitent truly re- turning to the lord and turning from sin so they pour out their hearts Well, in the middle of this amazing revival, in one sense, we have verse 7. The Philistines heard that they had gathered, that Israel had gathered at Mizpah, and the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Now, the Philistines, they really should have learned their lessons, shouldn't they? They had the ark for a good while, seven months. They should have figured out, we don't mess with the God of Israel. But their conclusion with not messing with the God of Israel was, we're still going to mess with Israel, though. And really, it's... It's almost understandable, right? Because way back at the first battle of Ebenezer, Israel comes out with the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines, oh no, they've, they've brought a god into the camp, and well, I think we're doomed, I don't know. And then somebody says, hey, let's just go for it. And they win. So in one sense, their hearts are hardened to the idea of the holiness of God and everything they learned under his heavy hand whether they see the gathering at Mizpah as an opportunity, you know all the fish are in one barrel, we can get them all at once, or if it's even just a threat, if they're saying, well, they're gathering at a watchtower, what if they're going to attack us? major issue with the Philistines, of course, is still their irreverence to the God of Israel. So back to Israel, verses 8 through 9. They express a radical dependence on prayer. Upon hearing that the Philistines are coming, what do they do? And I was like, oh, get your swords, get the spears, let's go. We're going to... No, they stopped. This is amazing, people. Can you imagine being a soldier in some small military group and you hear the footsteps of your enemies marching towards you and your general says, wait, put down your weapons. Let's pray. I mean, I like to consider myself a pretty spiritual person, but I would be thinking, can I pray with my weapon in hand? Can I pray, you know... That's not what they do here. And this isn't necessarily prescriptive, but it is descriptive for us. That their radical dependence on prayer led them not to say, all right, let's take out the Philistines. Let's get the ark out here. Let's know. They cried out to the Lord. Actually, what they did was they said to Samuel in verse 8, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now, A true penitent heart in a season of spiritual famine is not limited to the right vocabulary. But when you read the Bible and you see right vocabulary come out in times where wrong vocabulary is being used or wrong word order is being used, it's significant. And that is because often when people ask holy men to pray for them, they say, pray to the Lord your God. But Israel gets something here. Do not cease to pray to the Lord, our God, for us. So, this is not a, oh man, Samuel, save us. No, it's, Lord, you save us. And we know Samuel is the intermediary, he's the go between. He's the one who's delivered God's word to us, he's the one through whom we can speak to you. So, Samuel, you pray to our God for us. And that was their great assurance. And it worked. Samuel responds to this plea for prayer by offering a sacrifice. Do you ever wonder what's the difference between a whole burnt offering and, and other kinds of offerings? Um, this is a great point to answer this question that really is on my heart often too. I kind of forget. But in verse 9, Samuel took a nursing lamb offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. A whole burnt offering is really, really pertinent to the overall story of this. Let's remember this uh, this group of this family that was in charge of the priesthood of Israel before Samuel. Do you remember Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas? And the big complaint that everybody had with them is that they used to take their forks and they'd go around and take whatever from all the things that people were cooking to give as a sacrifice to the Lord. They would take more than what was to be apportioned to them. The priests were allowed to have something of the sacrifices, but not of whole burnt offerings. So it's a fascinating thing to notice that Samuel at this point doesn't offer a sacrifice and say, let me make a sandwich out of this real quick on the side before I do this. Rather, he offers a whole burnt offering. And this whole burnt offering, this isn't like, hey, go try to find a sheep that we don't really want anymore, maybe a sickly looking one, or or one that looks kind of skinny. No, this was a young, a nursing lamb with all the potential to grow up and become a great lamb for a great feast someday, they're offering that lamb as a sacrifice. So we have radical dependence on prayer. We have a perfect whole sacrifice. And then we have the Lord's response. Verses 10 through 11, the Lord thunders at the Philistines. He throws them into confusion. And what's so cool here is that it says the Lord, the Philistines were defeated before Israel. And again, if you remember back to their first battle, when they started losing, they come back, Israel regroups and they go to their elders and they say, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines today? Now things are different. It's not Israel saying, boy, we are something special now. Here we go. We're defeating the Philistines. God is defeating the Philistines before the Israelites now. The tables have turned and it is still the Lord who is sovereign over all, in control. So the people pursue the Philistines, and at least for a season, the Philistines become no problem to them whatsoever. It would be very easy at this point to say, what are we going to do next? Maybe we take out the Amorites. Maybe we go and build a great castle, or maybe we go and do something wonderful to show how great we are. Samuel's reaction in verse 12 is to take a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and call its name Ebenezer. And we talked about Ebenezer already, right? A stone of remembrance. Till now the Lord has helped us. It's fascinating, too, that this this name, Ebenezer, is the site of the first battle as well, where they lost. And so there's a remembrance in here of the Lord's help, and most specifically, that the Lord takes something that would be associated with defeat and now associates it with his victory. What does this mean for us in seasons of spiritual famine? As we consider what it means to return wholeheartedly to the Lord when, when sin is weighing on us, when we've, we've got so many distractions around us that that we just can't seem to come back to a humble posture before the Lord, to stand in Christ, and we need to be brought back to him. I think it's important for us to perhaps sum up this story and understand that the life of God's people is marked by returning again and again to trusting in the help, trusting in the power of the Lord. And I say that because we, I think it's easy for us to take returning to the Lord and repentance as a sometimes thing. But I think if you read the Old Testament, it's not going to take long before you realize repentance, returning to the Lord, is a common necessity for God's people, for their spiritual health. And this done in the context of not just individuals, but of the church at the time, as it were, the people of God, the nation of Israel, having national repentance together. Now, it's kind of funny. We look at this and we go, boy, we could sure use national repentance today, couldn't we? We'd really love it if our whole country would repent and turn to Christ. Well, that's something good to long for and something to work for in evangelism. But repentance is first and foremost the action of the household of God. So it is not that our hope is in turning our nation into a Christian nation. Perhaps it would be helpful for us to think in terms of turning our churches into Christian churches. To coming back to the Lord often. To be brought low, to be brought up, and to be brought back. To let these heart postures of faith and repentance be the normal rhythm of our spiritual life, not only individually, but collectively as well. Let's think about what a conflict might be in this passage. Because it's really a good story, isn't it? After all the ugliness of the last few chapters, it's really good to get a win, as they say. But Samuel, again, in the beginning of this, gives us this big little word, if. If you are returning to the Lord. How do we know if we are actually returning to the Lord? I think there are three really great checks for our posture before the Lord. A great little spiritual chiropractor adjustment, if you will. The first one I think Samuel brings up is the warning that wrong motivations yield improper worship. Wrong motivations yield improper worship. This is inherent in his question. Are you returning to the Lord? If you are, then there needs to be some kind of fruit. We need to see repentance and returning um, to the Lord, not just being something of, of our good deeds that we try to add into the mix of our sin, but to recognize that our deepest problem with sin is that we love it. We like to sin. Boy, No, who wants to say that, Christian or not? But think about it, at the very base level of why we sin is because there is an affection and a trust at the place of our hearts. And it may very well be that, that because of that love for sin, our version, if you will, of repentance won't actually include dealing with the idols of our hearts, but may include with covering up the idols of our hearts. Let's just add some good works and sprinkle them around so that when people talk about me, they don't talk about my short temper, but they talk about my great generosity. Wrong motivations yield improper worship. Don't come to the watchtower of Mizpah, Samuel says, with wrong motivations. Don't, don't come with uh, a, your, your deepest motivation really just being protecting those pet sins that you love so much. In addition to that, self-righteousness is very sneaky. You don't notice it at all always when it shows up. Self-righteousness is that attitude that says that I will find something to make myself right with God. There is something about me that is worthy of God's approval. Wrong motivations yield improper worship. Secondly, impatience is a shortcut to unbelief. Impatience is a shortcut to unbelief. This, again, coming from this notion of it being a 20-year journey from chapter 6 to chapter 7. From the ark being set to Kiryat jerim and the people of Israel actually doing something about it. 20-year journey. Now, it's very spiritual, perhaps, in our hearts to long to see a great move of God in the hearts of his people and do it today. Why couldn't today be the church service where we all repent in sackcloth and ashes and fall on our faces before the Lord? In one sense, we could say, yeah, that could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen in the middle of your work day. But it could very well be that behind that motivation is is an angst before God. An impatience. That we would say, I would like to just kind of inflate my faith a little bit more. And maybe that is what will, in one sense, wake God up. But impatience is not a way of relating to God. It is a shortcut to unbelief. And that is because impatience is directly contrary to the character of God. God shows his patience, or the King James Version translates it as long-suffering, which is great. But he shows his long-suffering best in times we think he ought to be hurrying up. Lord, do you not see the world around us? Can't you see the foundations of family and church and government and schools, all of these things crashing down before us? Won't you wake up and do something for us in this moment right now? Maybe maybe you're not doing anything because we just don't believe it enough. So let's get some claps going. Let's Let's jog in place in church. Let's run around the building if we can. Maybe that will show God that we're serious and then he'll get serious as well. This is impatience. This is contrary to God's ways. And I'll give you a passage for it from Matthew chapter 13. Jesus gives this illustration of the seed of the gospel falling on different soils. And it is that one soil where the seed seems to sprout up quickly, but it is also quickly choked out by the cares of the world, by worries and by anxieties. Jesus teaches us very clearly that quick growth is not God's way of doing things. Rarely does the flower that springs up immediately escape the choking work of the cares of the world. So are you, in one sense, expecting God to move in some mighty and magnificent way right now and really it's just kind of coming down to can you clap on beat and can you get hyped up enough to make it happen or to make him make it happen? Third, fear attacks truth and connection. It's interesting here in this great moment while the Philistines are on their way, the people of Israel become afraid They were afraid of the Philistines. And they had the right response to their fear, didn't they? Go to prayer. Go to the Lord. First John, one of my favorite verses for my little kids, is perfect love casts out all fear. So what should we do when we're afraid? Go to the one who loves us perfectly. Put our trust in him alone. But if we allow fear to fester in our hearts, it will attack truth and it will attack our connection to God it will attack our connection with god and it will also connect our it will attack our connection with each other as well so we need to be alert to what fear can do to what what we kind of let turn into anxiety and let consume our thoughts because we're incredibly worried about how things are going to end up hebrews 3:12 kind of summary to this conflict says take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart and then he says that that evil, unbelieving heart can lead you to fall away from the living God. Not to be brought low before him, not to be brought up to him, or brought back, but rather, to fall away. That, you, know, you could say, well, okay, let's do a theology check real quick. Can Christians lose their salvation? Uh, Elders at the church here, myself included, we believe that you can't lose your salvation. If you are truly in Christ, there is nothing that can be done to undo that wonderful work. And if you would like to have more of a conversation on that, I would love to talk to you about that more. But for now, suffice it to say, we believe God's word tells us that if we are in Christ, there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from him. And yet we have Hebrews 3.12. Take care, Brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. This kind of unbelieving heart is not the heart that says, Lord, I trust you, but I just have doubts, I have worries, I have concerns. Please help me to learn to trust you more. An evil, unbelieving heart is a heart that says, forget it. No, I I don't spend time wondering what God's doing. I don't spend time trusting in him. I'm going to trust my own way and trust that he's going to be okay with that. That's an evil, unbelieving heart. And with that kind of heart, we can very easily fall away from the living God. This is the true concern of the believer, the under-shepherd, and the people of God at large. That is, in our context for ourselves, individually, our concern would be that we stand before the Lord. That we ever be returning to Him. For the under-shepherds, that would be in our um, passage, Samuel, his desire to see the people of God continually returning to the Lord. But also today, for pastors, elders, teachers, church leaders are concerned to keep us together in the Lord, not to fall away. And it is also the community effort of the church to stay together in the Lord as well. Because the fear, the, the reality, the dread of falling away from the Lord is a real thing. It doesn't happen in this 1 first, first Samuel chapter 7 passage. But it is the reality for those who may think that they are in, but find out that they are not that there's a separation between them and God, even though they've gone through all the rituals, even though they've, they've been able to cover up their idols very well with good deeds, with church attendance, with baptism, whatever it might be. Hearts can be far from God, though they might be singing His praises on Sunday mornings. And so we need something to purify our hearts. The matter of the heart is a massive theme in 1 Samuel, as we'll see, especially as we get closer to David. When David comes as the replacement to Saul, God tells Samuel, I'm looking for someone who has a heart like mine, and I've found him, David, who has a heart after me, who's chasing after me, who wants to be more like me. So it's important for us, if we see the matter of the heart come up in these passages, to point them out. We also need an Ebenezer to purify our hearts as well. Samuel's response again to the victory after all this was to build a memorial, to turn Ebenezer from a memory of deceit, defeat to victory. Have you ever been to Washington, D.C., the National Mall, all those different memorials? I mean, it's pretty remarkable. I've only been twice, but my goodness, I could go again and be just as amazed at the magnitude of, of structure that we put to remember a person. And and some significant people in American history, of course. But major people, our, our idea is major people need a major structure so that we can majorly remember them well. Why might we need to do this on a spiritual level? Why might we need something as a as a structure, as it were, in our hearts, and our minds, in, in our understanding of our history with the Lord. We need it because when we remember, our hearts are changed. Our hearts are softened by memories of God's grace, of his goodness to us. Remembering it changes our hearts. That is, again, a major theme of 1 Samuel. Samuel's leadership, his leadership was in three roles, as prophet and priest and judge. He was the prophet, he was the one who was speaking to God's people on behalf of God. He was the priest who would offer up sacrifices on behalf of God's people to God. And he was also the judge who would stand as the leader militarily and morally before God's people. He would communicate the promise and the power and the presence of God to God's people. And Christ's leadership to us does exactly the same thing, only better, only more fully, only perfectly. Christ's leadership is not of prophet, priest, and judge, but prophet, priest, and king. He is the one who today communicates to us the promise of God, the power of God, and the presence of God. All summarized, yes, in the Old Testament, in the Ark, but for us today at the cross. Where Christ, in accordance with the promise of God, as Paul said, Jesus Christ died for us in accordance with the scriptures. That he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. He fulfills the promise of God. He shows the power of God by not staying dead, but by three days later, rising again and granting us newness of life. And he communicates the presence of God because our God is not one who would look at our wayward hearts and say, I want nothing to do with them, but he is one who takes on flesh, dwells among us, and becomes obedient to the point of death on a cross in order to bring us back to himself. He it is who defeated our sin before us, just as God defeated the Philistines before Israel. your Sin is not far from us. Again, we love it. We keep it close to our hearts. And so the effect of the cross is not something that simply happened 2,000 years ago, but it is something that happens daily as we deal with the idols of our hearts, as we deal with the sin, as we deal with our uh, mixed motives and our fear and whatever else weighs us away from God. It is the work of the cross that draws us to himself, that brings us low, that brings us up, and brings us near to him. 2 Timothy two eight says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul says this to a you, young preacher. In his moment of towards the end of his life as he's in prison, and he wants to say something really significant to Timothy, and he makes sure to include this Remember Jesus Christ. And we would say from this passage, Jesus Christ, our true Ebenezer. We said earlier that Ebenezer means a stone of help, but it could also be translated that the helper is a stone, our helper is a rock. A mighty God who is able not only to deal with physical and temporal needs, but the eternal cost of our souls met perfectly at the cross. So we'll sing after our time in God's word, our last song today, of God being our help in time ages past. Where we'll say, under the shadow of your throne, your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone and our defense is sure. So remember your salvation, church. If nothing else from behind the pulpit, my desire is to call you to remember your salvation, even if annoyingly so. Remember Jesus Christ. It's really interesting thinking about the, the time frame that we set ourselves in. I should, be, I should be at this level of spirituality by now. Why isn't that God isn't working? And well, maybe it's me. Well, I'm doing everything I can. Why isn't he? There's all those kinds of things. And I thought about um, this past week how you might be driving down the highway. And I don't know. I'm a pretty calm highway driver. So maybe this doesn't apply to you. I don't know. I like to just kind of cruise in that right lane quite a bit. But it bothers me when you hear, you know, from far, and probably because I have little kids in the van, but you hear this like short buzzing, and it turns into, and this motorcycle just appears out of nowhere, weaves between the cars, and and just seems to be getting where you want to be so much faster than you. And here you are, steering this dad van, just chugging along steady on the way. And this may not be a very exciting illustration for you, church, but we're not the motorcyclists. We're the dad van, and we're packed front row to back row, all of us together on this journey. God's desire, yes, he's going to grow you individually at different paces and all those things, but we're here collectively to grow together and to do so out of our remembrance of our salvation. Our job is to remember Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? I think we can put this down to three things to end this morning and how we might raise our Ebenezer in the way Samuel did, but in a spiritual sense, of course. First, let's remember our salvation with the right posture. Remember, be brought low, brought up, and brought near. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Something I know I've gotten my notes many, many times here. But do so in a way that remembers with purpose. That remembers with the purpose of purifying your heart daily. Being purified by that good news. Of of taking the thing, yeah, preach the gospel to yourself and also take this other thing that you know you've been dealing with, your short temper or whatever sin has been besetting you, has been weighing heavy on you. Take the gospel and say, which one of these is greater? Where does the power really lie? And realize it lies in the gospel. Recall what the gospel, what in the gospel so moves your heart. Is it perhaps his unconditional choice of you to be a part of his family? To receive him by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone? Not because he looked at you and looked into your future and said that you would respond in faith or, or saw that you would do something wonderful if he would just give you that leg up and bring salvation to you, but rather he's chosen you freely. Is it his unconditional choice that so moves your heart? Is it his secure hold that Jesus says to his disciples, you are in my hand and no one can snatch you out of it, not even yourself? Is it his victory over death? Is it a victory that you need in your life? You're like, boy, this thing just, oh, it's so heavy on me. I need to rest in the victory of Christ to know that death is undone and I will be with him forever. Preach the gospel to yourself with the right posture. What in the gospel will grip you on Monday morning? Secondly, raise your Ebenezer in the midst of the church. Stay in regular contact with your brothers and sisters. I know, you need one more thing to add to your schedule this week, don't you? But if you could look at the list, your to-do list for today through next Saturday, does it include an interaction with other believers? Does it include a necessity of that interaction? And I don't mean just because you have a meeting and you got to keep your schedule together. But I mean because at the place of your heart you recognize, I can't do this Christian life alone. I need someone to remind me and I need to be about reminding my brothers and sisters of the glorious gospel of Christ. Raise your Ebenezer in the midst of the church, not just on Sunday mornings, but throughout the rest of your week. Have the express purpose of gospel edification, of building each other up in Christ. And thirdly, Raise your Ebenezer with the mission at hand. This week you'll be be meeting people who are hurting, who are hopeless, and who are even hostile to the gospel. Hostile to God because of their sin. What do they need that is found in Christ? What does the person who is hurting that you know at the office need something in Christ? What can you offer them? What about the person who is hopeless? Can you offer them hope in Christ? What about the person who is hostile? Can you express the peace of Christ from your own heart? And call them to it as well. Raise your Ebenezer with the mission at hand. So I have this up here with three summary questions for each of those postures, each of those ways of raising your Ebenezer. With the right heart posture, how will you find the help of Christ this week? In the midst of the church, in what ways can you help others? And with the mission in mind, who will you see who needs to know the help of the Lord? For yourself, for the church, for the lost.